Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about power as it relates to the topic of domestic abuse. But before we jump into that discussion, uh, please allow me to remind you once again of PeaceWorks University. You know, PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and it really is your best next step if you're learning about gospel-centered approaches to domestic abuse. Uh, You can head over to chrismoles.org to find out about PeaceWorks University. We would love to have you be part of our membership community. Uh, It is a community. We uh, exchange ideas and talk and uh, have our own private Facebook group, but it's also um, a resource uh, as the membership website allows you to access a vault of my past teachings, master classes with friends, uh, homework assignments, toolbox items, bonus material, entire conferences are inside uh, PeaceWorks University. So if you're benefiting from what you hear on the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. All right, so today I want to talk a little bit about power. You know, uh, this concept and conversation regarding power and abuse has been coming up a lot lately in my circles when it comes to conservative Christians, um, evangelical Christians, biblical counselors, and I've really been struggling a great deal uh, personally. I shouldn't say anything bad. I mean, I'm okay. I'm just saying it's it's been a difficult series of conversations trying to understand the hesitancy uh, of this idea that power is really central to the conversation. Now, now what I mean by that is I'm going to contend that abuse is fostered and manifested in relationships where one person uses power over another. And uh, I'm going to try to illustrate that and and talk about that some today. But I feel like there are times, and I want to be gracious. I really, if you guys know me, I really try to be gracious and winsome. And I I mean, I'm committed to that approach. However, there are some conversations that I just can't quite get my head around. It's one of those things where I'm, I'm, I'm really lacking in understanding uh, some of the the pushback. And so I'm my, my I speculate and for me, the speculation includes things like if if I acknowledge power, like if if I'm a, a conservative evangelical, if I'm a biblical counselor and I acknowledge power, that power is really central to this idea of abuse, then I have to then admit that I can't mutualize or blame the victim. I think that's a key tenet of what we teach. If, if power dynamics are important to determining abuse, recognizing abuse, responding to abuse, right? If I'm contending that an abuser has an advantage that they're using, right, to harm the victim, then I have to then acknowledge that I can't mutualize the abuse. In fact, that would be a very difficult term. I've heard people use the term mutual abuse. That may better be termed conflict. Or it could be abuse and resistance. It's it's very hard for equals to effectively abuse one another if abuse is power over, if abuse is power used to control. 
if abuse is simply a, a series of behaviors, then sure, I, I could probably get there, but I think that's part of the rub. If I acknowledge power is central to this argument, then I can't mutualize or blame the victim. Number two, I can't hold the victim accountable for resisting in a way that makes me uncomfortable, right? So I, I may be able to ask and work with the victim on sinful resistance versus biblical resistance, legal resistance versus unlawful resistance, but it makes it really difficult for me to put a victim's resistance in the same category as abuse. So if power is really important to this discussion, then I can't hold the victim accountable for resisting in ways that I find unacceptable. Now, I, I can address their heart in a separate context, but in the context of violence and abuse, that's primary, and resistance is in many ways secondary. Now, it, it's important to address, um, but not to the exclusion of the abuse. And, and I see that sometimes is wanting to give resistance equal billing to the abuse, as opposed to, yes, let's talk about how we resist, but in the context of the abuse, let, let's not forget that someone was using power to harm them. And um, we can process better ways to resist, but nonetheless, that power was abused. The third part, I think, is if if I come to that conclusion that power is really central to this argument, right, then I can't mutualize or blame the victim. I can't hold the victim accountable to the same degree I do the abuser regarding their resistance. And here's the rub I think that I'm running into. It may undermine my view or theology of authority, or it may require me to be more nuanced in my view. Okay, did you catch that? So it, it may undermine my view or theology of authority, or it may simply require me to be more nuanced in my theology and view of authority. Where I'm getting, what I'm getting to with that is that sometimes the pushback comes that, okay, if you don't mutualize, if you only hold <laughs> the husband accountable, then what you end up with is a position in which the husband's authority is being questioned, right? So there is two great sins in some ways. There's the sin of uh, the abuse, but there's also another sin of lack of submission, right? Or um, no submission. And I guess what I'm getting at is I'm not, I'm just not convinced that addressing the abuse of power in any way affects our understanding of authority. In fact, I actually think it makes our view of authority, theologically speaking, more robust, more powerful, more palatable, and more effective in practice. Let me just unpack that for a minute. So some pushback will be, okay, so Chris, you're suggesting that in areas of abuse, power is really central. It's really important to the discussion. And I would say, in general, I think so. Now, because not all sin is abusive, I think we can fall into this ditch of, I've been sinned against, so therefore I'm being abused. That's not really the rubric. That's not really the, um, the framework 
by which you can properly, I think, address abuse, in particular domestic abuse or sexual assault or so on. Because not all sin is abusive. And not all actions, because not all actions create fear or threat. And those are kind of some big rocks that we really have to wrestle with. If my feelings are hurt, that's different than my agency being restricted, my freedom being limited, or my uh, ability to think being uh, affected, right? So agency is also another important part of this. So Chris, you're saying power is important. I would say generally speaking, yes, it is. And if we remove that piece and we simply make abuse about a string of behaviors, then I think we, we do victims a disservice because abuse is not simply a string of behaviors. It's also a perception, a worldview, how one sees the world and others, and then how one uses their strength and power to affect that worldview on people who, who perhaps are subject to that power. Uh, not all sin is abusive, but all abuse is sinful. Not all actions create fear or threat, but actions that do create fear or threat hit a high level on that uh, on the red flags, right? Let me give you an example that may make sense, maybe not. Let's say I'm driving uh, down the road later, got a basketball game to coach later, and I'm driving down the road, and I see the the lights and sirens, okay? Um, and I get pulled over by a police officer. Uh, the police officer uh, claims that I was speeding. I was going 75, let's say, in a 55. Okay, that would be a violation. It would be a traffic violation. And so in the process of citing me appropriately, using his power and authority appropriately, he asks if he can search my vehicle. All right? And I say, no, I, I'm not really comfortable with that. I'll just take the citation um, and pay the fine later, and I, I promise I'll slow down. And rather than honoring my request, he insists on searching my vehicle, and I deny. And he drags me from the car and searches my vehicle anyway. And in the process of dragging me from my car, I try to get back in my car. Well, now, now I'm charged with resisting arrest. You see what I'm getting at? Now, I could take it to court. I could um, go through the legal system. And hopefully, if the system is just, then it would be a violation of my rights and I didn't consent to any searches or seizures or what have you, whatever the, ling the lingo is, I would still be guilty of speeding and I would not be charged with abusing the officer. I'd be charged with resisting the officer. Because of his power, he would be the one abusing. Does this make sense? So he has power over me. He can choose whether or not to abuse that power or not. And I can choose how I resist to that abuse or not. The same could be true if the advantage is financial or if the advantage is size or strength or, or some other aspect of power. That's why I think the language is important and why we as biblical counselors, Christians, and evangelicals try to soften the power language because we're maybe afraid of losing a theology of authority that we, we in many ways uh, do great harm by presenting an argument that's about mutualization or simply a loss of trust. And, and those are not exactly the same as what we talk about when it comes to abuse. Sexual abuse of a minor 
requires someone who's an adult abusing that position. You know, domestic abuse requires somebody in a position of power or strength or spiritually speaking from many of our circles, uh, a position of authority to abuse that authority uh, and harming their partner. So I, I do think that power is central to this argument. And I think it's something that we should nuance and discuss rather than simply dismissing out of hand out of, out of fear of undermining authority. And we're seeing that at, at various levels, which is something I want to talk about in a future podcast, because I think we're seeing those abuses of power in uh, the church as far as pastoral, you know, bully pastors, as well as we're seeing it um, in the home with husbands and fathers who abuse their power. Let me shift gears for just a minute and talk about a theological perspective. Because I, you know, I had said early on, I, I think if we acknowledge that power is important to this argument, then we do, in many ways, need to nuance our theology. So I just want to challenge us to think, what does the Bible say about power, in particular, in the life of a believer? Because for many of us, uh, authority, I think this theology of authority has been elevated to such a degree that we have moved from what the Bible may call constituted or delegated authority to a position of unquestionable authority. And, and that's problematic, right? So like in my little story, you know, the police officer has authority, but he also has a standard by which they operate. And when he violates that standard, he abuses that power. And we have a standard as well as believers. And my challenge would be to all of us, and I need to work on this. I, I wouldn't say that I'm the expert on this. I'm still growing in this. I think we all need to really wrestle with this theology of power and how Jesus viewed power and authority and position and leadership and how he taught us to exercise that in our daily lives, in our homes, and in our churches. Just a quick, maybe quick overview, just some basic thoughts. If we just start in the Gospels with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus talks about uh, power in, in response to the oppressive rule of Rome when he gives these uh, really intriguing forms of resistance to his followers. He even says, don't resist an evil person. My understanding is that it means don't resist in the same way they're using force. Don't, don't return evil for evil. Don't be violent in the face of violence. Be creative. And he gives these um, instructions of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and leaving the courtroom with, with less clothes than you started with. All of which I think from a, a folks who maybe have never experienced oppression, we kind of see that as silly. But when you really process the information, it's a way of challenging oppression nonviolently, effectively, pointing the, the finger at the uh, abuser to say, you know, to the world, look at what they're doing to me. Look at what they are doing. Help them see uh, the wickedness. There's calls to humility throughout the, the New Testament in particular. Think about uh, Paul's words in Philippians 2, that we would have the same mind that Jesus had. We do not consider equality with God something to be clung to or grasped hold of, but you know, he emptied himself. He became humble. He became a servant. He became obedient, even obedient to the point of death. There's these calls to humility um, as opposed to this prideful exercise of power. There's examples of such where Jesus, uh, who had every right to claim authority 
and use that authority chooses to use it as a servant. John 13 comes to mind and the way in which he washes the disciples' feet. And this is our example. And so for some reason, and I fall victim to this too, but I think when I fall victim to this, I have to acknowledge I'm living in disobedience. When I, when I clamor after control, when I seek to be in power, when I try to exercise authority from a top-down model, I'm not following the example of Jesus. I'm following the example of the kingdom of the world. When you consider that we're commanded, Mark 10, Matthew 20, the most direct commands to the disciples that we're not to exercise power over. It cannot be this way among you, Jesus said. Even reflecting on the fruit of the Spirit, none of which call us to be powerful or controlling, but instead are virtues that really reflect the opposite, gentleness, patience, kindness, long-suffering. The illustrative nature of the Gospels comparing and contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world. What about Pilate's porch as he is wrestling with the conviction of Jesus and he says, are you a king? I mean, that's really the charges that were trumped up against Jesus, that he was leading an insurrection, that he was a brigand who was coming to overthrow Caesar, right? And Pilate's question, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes. But not like you're thinking. Not, my kingdom's not of this world. And then the, the illustration he uses is one of power. He says, if my kingdom's of this, of this world, my followers would be out fighting. Right? My followers would be uh, you know, rallying the troops. They'd be creating an insurgency. They'd be you know, engaging in warfare against Caesar. But that's not the way my kingdom is. That's not how my kingdom works. My kingdom's about serving. If you want to be great, you have to serve. If you want to be first, you have to be last. Paul goes on to call his followers in Romans 12 to live at peace with everyone. In the very context of talking about um, governmental authorities in the very next chapter. Oppressive ones at that. Live at peace with everyone, as much as it depends upon you. What about the illustration of the martyrs? That really is the call of the Great Commission, that we would be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere. The greatest expression of that, of Martia, was the disciples' willingness to die for the sake of the gospel, as opposed to exercising power and control over people they wish to convert. I guess I'm just coming back to this. What is authority? Theologically speaking, have we nuanced it enough to say that if God gives us a position of authority, is it about power or is it about responsibility? And if we use our power to demean, destroy, condemn, or control another person, is it in any way God-honoring, number one, and then number two, is it worth following? From a Christian perspective, is it something that we should honor alone, without critique, without intervention, without correction? We'll talk about that more in a future podcast, but I really long to see us wrestle with this idea of power. And when we dismiss it, uh, deflect it, push it aside, or relegate it to a secondary issue, I personally believe we're doing some damage uh, to victims. 
and we're giving perpetrators a greater sense of, um, of hiding, a greater potential of hiding, as we have somehow rewarded, honored, or respected this abuse of power. Rather than seeing power and authority as gifts from God, right, that in the hands of the believer should look like service and humility. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the PeaceWorks Podcast. I appreciate it. We'll talk more about the, the discussion of power in a future episode. But if you want to learn more about the things that we've been talking about, let me remind you again about PeaceWorks University. You can find out more at chrismoles.org. Thank you again for listening to everything uh, that we put out. You guys have been uh, great support to us. We appreciate so much. And so if you get a chance, could you rate, review, let the world know how much you appreciate the PeaceWorks podcast. Thank you guys again for joining us. Until next time, God bless.